The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick are your anchors for the next three hours. Lucky you. Right, these are your headlines. A textbook case of mismanagement. The Fed's top banking regulator slams Silicon Valley Bank, blaming oversight for the company's collapse as officials in Washington prepare for congressional hearings. First Citizens shares surge after its sweetheart deal with the FDIC to buy Silicon Valley Bank deposits and loans. CEO Frank Holding tells CNBC the deal is a win-win. This is a remarkable transaction in partnership with the FDIC that should instill confidence in our deposit system. And uh, it's, it's also a great example of where regulators and banks come together to protect depositors. Selling to the rallies, says Double Line Capital's Jeffrey Gundlach, as he warns a U.S. recession will start in just a few months' time. The economic headwinds are building. We've been talking about this for a while, and I think that the recession is, is here in a few, in a few months. Um, all we really need is the rate to go higher. U.S. regulators sue crypto exchange Binance and its boss CZ, accusing the company of violating compliance rules to attract U.S. users. Uh, a very warm welcome to the show, everybody. So look, there's a little bit of calm in the markets at the moment, isn't there? Picking themselves off, dusting themselves down, and just digesting and picking over the bones of what's been a tumultuous couple of weeks in the banking sector on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, in the meantime, Fed officials now have not pulled any punches ahead of the congressional hearings this week on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, which... First, Citizens Bank partially bought at a near 25% discount from the FDIC yesterday. Now, in prepared remarks ahead of the first session today, the Fed's top banking regulator, this is Michael Barr, said the SVB collapse was, quote, a textbook, textbook case of mismanagement and that the lender waited too long to address its problems. The FDIC chair, Martin Grunberg's testimony, is set to be the highlight and highlight the systemic risk of multiple banks' failings within the space of a month and says their regulation, quote, merits serious attention, especially for liquidity, capital and interest rate risk. Both officials will testify before the Senate Banking Committee later today alongside Nelly Yang, who is the Treasury Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, before speaking to the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow, Karen. Also coming up today, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey will testify to UK lawmakers on the collapse of SVB's UK arm from 1045 CET. The Treasury Committee has already published correspondence between the government and central bank on the topic, with Bailey warning the US's decision to bail out the bank could increase the risk of moral hazard. 
First Citizens shares soared more than 50% on the back of the news it would purchase SVB's deposits and loans from the FDIC in a deal totaling more than $70 billion in which the FDIC will absorb part of the loss on some of the assets. Around $90 billion in other assets and securities will be kept in receivership for disposition by the FDIC. First Citizen CEO Frank Holding told CNBC the deal was an important step. This is a remarkable transaction in partnership with the FDIC that should instill confidence in our deposit system. And uh, it's, it's also a great example of where regulators and banks come together to protect depositors. Well, Holding also says First Citizens is the right bank for the transaction. We have ample liquidity and capital uh, in this marketplace, uh, and we're... Uh, Working with the FDIC, uh, we both agreed that we had the strength and stability to handle this transaction. Well, what do the markets uh, think of this transaction? Charles Henry Mouchard is uh, Chief Investment Officer at Size Bank and joins us now. Charles Henry, good to see you back again on our air. Let, let me just ask you, um, do you think that this deal is sufficient now to remove some of the market nervousness about the U.S. banking system? Well, I think it's, uh, it was definitely, you know, moving to the right direction yesterday in terms of restoring the confidence. Uh, I think as I lighted before, the trade-off of this is obviously uh, increasing more hazard because you don't want to save all of the weakest uh, players uh, in such markets. But, you know, that's news aside. There are still a lot of uh, question marks regarding the state of the uh, U.S. financial system. Obviously, the big question mark is on commercial real estate. I think that was the main stress last week, including in Europe with Deutsche Bank. So as long as we have, let's say, the interest rate cycle starting to hit the weakest links of the economy, obviously banks are the forefront of this and they might continue to suffer from that kind of events. So let's say watch out very importantly commercial real estate, which is currently uh, one of the weakest links of the uh, US economy. Is it, is it possible to save the US banking system and continue to hike interest rates to tackle inflation. I, I know that the Fed has looked at various lending lines that it can offer up to the banks to effectively sustain liquidity and somehow uh, calm the markets. Uh, and yet, even as uh, they hike interest rates, they are doing damage to those portfolios of treasury bonds and other assets that suffer duration risk? Well, this is the trade-off uh, that the Fed is trying to install. So on one hand, uh, they are tackling, uh, let's say, the weakness of the US financial system by providing ample liquidity. Some are even naming it self-QE. And on the other hand, they are hiking rates uh, for the rest. So it's basically, you know, QE for the markets and quantitative tightening for all of the others. It's, you know, on paper, that looks something which is, let's say, doable, feasible. But in reality, that's not that easy because when you're hiking rates, you are making the banks with exposure to long duration assets, you know, weaker. And on the other hand, by providing ample liquidity to the system, this is not deflationary, this is inflationary. So you're putting more pressure in terms of hiking interest rates. So this kind of, let's say, very shaky balance between, let's say, QE for the markets and quantitative tightening for the rest uh, is obviously you know, creating some risk you know, down the line. 
Uh, Charlene, nice to see you today. So look, can we put to bed now the nonsense that I keep hearing at the start of every single rate hiking cycle, that the great expansion of net interest margins means that banks will make hay and skip into the sunshine with the joy of expanded rate offerings? Or actually, is it the fact that more delinquencies, worse holdings of assets that they uh, have got stuck on their books against long-term liabilities, and actually means that it's not the golden scenario when we see rates hiked? Or actually, is there something specifically wrong with certain banks that means from others they can make hay? This is exactly what has been happening over the last two weeks. In a matter of a few days, we have moved from higher interest rates is good for net interest margin for the banks to Higher interest rates has put at risk, you know, a big chunk of the economy and banks, because of the full front of that, are going to pay the price. And also there is this kind of, let's say, very, let's say, difficult, vicious cycle currently in the US where the more the Fed is hiking rates, the higher in the interest rates on money market funds and the more deposit outflows we are seeing moving from banks to money market funds. So for the time being, let's say the hiking, the rate hike in the US proves to be self-defeating for the weakest banks. So yes, indeed, you're right. Let's say we have moved a lot. Let's say in terms of interest rates is positive for banks to interest rates currently is a negative for banks. Yeah, but Charlene, this is so important. And it's a conversation that you, Karen, I and Jeff should have over a beautiful bottle of red over many hours because it's not a short chat. But the fact of the matter is, is this just a few weak banks or actually is it a systemic problem that when rates rise, this kind of thing is inevitable? And, and for instance, last time round, it was some dodgy sold mortgage products. It was doom loops with the sovereign. This time round, it just happens to be guilt holdings or sovereign holdings. But actually, it's the same scenario, just repackaged every single cycle. Well, you know, if you do your bottom-up analysis, obviously, you know, there are a lot of differences between the weakest players and, and the large banks. And as it is very often the case, you know, during that kind of crisis, banks are black box and you need to put a lot of trust on the, uh, uh, the you know, the, the, the CEOs and, and all of the, let's say, governing bodies. So it's a lot about, let's say, governance, governance, governance. So the weakest governance get hits the first, but there was a risk, as you pointed out, that at some point, volatility becomes self-defeating and volatility can even put stress on the biggest players, on the safest players. I don't think we are there yet uh, because there is still, let's say, some lot of differences uh, between the weakest players and the and the best players within the market. But that's obviously a risk, you know, if, let's say, the banking crisis continues. Can we ask about the regulatory environment now? Because there's been a reluctance to talk about this wave as a bailout for banks. But if we look at the devil in the detail around the First Citizens purchase of SVB in the assets, there are credit protections here, there are guarantees. So does this tell us that future acquirers will actually be given some sort of assistance from authorities if that's necessary? Yes, indeed. But can it be applied to many takeover? There are always, let's say, some limits to the extent of liquidity and assistance uh, that governing bodies can bring, let's say, to the weakest players. So we have seen this in Europe. We now see this in the US. But that can only be applied to a few players. They cannot bail out the whole system. So I think that's why it's very important for them to cut, let's say, the lack of confidence that we're currently seeing in the markets in order to avoid, let's say, a full-blown banking crisis. And I think that is precisely what they try to do. Is it a subtle change, though, in terms of the sort of rescues we're seeing from authorities at this point, given there's still some distance between what we saw during the height of the financial crisis? 
Well, I think there, there is no big difference between what we are seeing now and and you know the 2008 you know financial crisis. There's always a point where uh, let's say government authorities needs to step in. Uh, but the good news on this is that it doesn't seem that we are seeing the same kind of weaknesses than in 2008. I think that particularly applies to Europe, for instance, where if we look at the different ratios and how also regulation has been uh, applied constantly to the vast majority of, of, let's say, European banks, there seems to be a difference. So luckily, the the the, the extent of bailout that will need to be brought to the, to the financial system will be in the US and Europe will not be the same. But definitely, you know, it's it's time for them to step in. Can I ask you about the flight of deposits that we've witnessed and whether we're done yet on that? Because there's still very high yields to be found in some bond markets. Do you think we're going to see a continuation of this theme where investors are just looking for another place to park their money rather than very low yielding transaction or deposit accounts? Well, especially in the US, there is a very, let's say, unique phenomena which is currently playing out. This is the first bank run we are seeing at the era of digital banking, point one and point two on Twitter. So you can see that, let's say, many uh, depositors are checking what's going on with their own, let's say, regional banks. And if they do see that deposit are starting to, let's say, uh, flows out, they start to panic themselves and move very quickly the money from their bank to a stronger bank. So that's something that we haven't seen before, which is different than 2008. And as long as we have this big dichotomy, between money market funds rates and deposit rates of many banks, we're going to see that. By the way, you just need to check Google search with money market funds, and you will see that there is huge pickup in terms of interest for, let's say, depositors trying to find better places to park their money. We've got to say goodbye. Charles-Henri, nice to see you. Thanks so much for Thank helping you. us now. Charles-Henri Monchal, uh, Chief Investment Officer for Size Bank. Uh, UBS CEO Ralph Hammers has reportedly told bank employees the lender didn't buy Credit Suisse only to close it. Well, it's hardly a blinding revelation, is, is it? it? Um, Reuters is reporting this and it says it has seen an internal memo in which Hammers frames the government-backed acquisition as a growth opportunity for UBS. And why not? It would make them, I think, number two in private wealth management globally after one of the leading US banks, number three maybe in um, asset management globally. I mean, it puts them in the big 10 bracket. It's great. There's on a just lot about in there, most lines. So why would, about, why would they buy it just to close it? I well, mean, sometimes be, there are stories you read that just make you go, what? Because when you buy an asset manager, for instance, let's say that's one of the large bits they want, yeah? yeah. You don't <laughs> keep the name, you don't necessarily keep the staff, but you keep the clients. And that's the aim. You keep a few of the stars at the top. But let's say, I don't know, I'm guessing here. Let's say there are, let's just, just 10 numbers here. Let's say bank A buys bank B and there are 10,000 asset management working here and 10,000 working asset management there. You want the top 100 managers here, but actually you don't really need the back office. You don't need the tech support. You don't need a lot of the staff. You don't need the legal. You don't need the HR. You don't need the marketing. So I'm afraid to say you may not buy something to close it, but the reason why you buy it is because of those top 100 managers and those top 1,000 clients. You don't buy it for the rest of it. And I'm afraid that's the truth. We all know that. Think of the broader strategy for banks lately. It has been to pull back on global footprint. It's been to concentrate on markets where you have market share, where you have dominance. So effectively have economies or of scale. management, which they all, all Right. <laughs> two parts. But in this particular case, you've got two banks that were in overlap 
the, the consolidation was a challenge because they both had big presence in very similar markets. So the fact that this has been allowed to go through and now the consolidation is happening, it means you've got a bank that can bulk up in areas where it was previously unable to bulk up. How many up? times have we seen a bank take over another bank and at the start you have this beautifully amalgamated name with about four or five parts to it? Yeah. And then over time, they chop off the end bit so that it just becomes UBS, for instance. I mean, not mm. for, for example. I mean, yeah, it happened with SBC, for goodness, Swiss Banking Corporation. Who's ever heard of that one in the current? A lot of you haven't even heard yeah, of it, absolutely. but actually. SBC, UBS, well, yeah, back uh, in the day. SG Warburg, wasn't mm. that? I mean, mm. I, when I went for, I almost worked for UBS. Mm. In 1988, I got a job offer from Warburg's, which was UBS then in, um, down at Broadgate. And, uh, Life could have been very different if I'd have taken a different path. But, oh, oh, yes, you'd be yeah. on that beach now, looking out <laughs> across the uh, Oh, Jeffrey, if I knew the answer to that, I would be on the beach <laughs> yeah, now. How many times absolutely. have you heard that one? Absolutely. I will just say, I mean, I, I think your point is, is, is perfectly on point uh, about the, the fact that banks have been encouraged to stay in their lane. And that's the consequence of the last financial crisis, that the regulations effectively encouraged banks to unwind any counterparty risk or cross-border lending that could have been seen as dangerous going forward. But of course, inevitably, there are always consequences of that because part of the ability of financial organisations to manage risk is their ability to lay off that risk and securitize product and unfortunately the rules as they were crafted after the last financial crisis discouraged a lot of that interlinking. And obviously you see much firmer cash rates in some jurisdictions versus others so it helps out that global NIM story at some of the banks. We could do with something to cheer us up now, couldn't we? What's, what's Jeffrey Goodlack been saying? Double Line Capital <laughs> CEO Jeffrey Goodlack says he believes the US recession is just months away. Goodlack says a recession would require a significant response from the Fed predicting multiple rate cuts later this year. Goodlack told CNBC the US labour market is all that is holding back a recession. Regional banks uh, fuel a lot of small business lending, a large fraction of it. And it's fairly clear that that's going to be contracting. So uh, I think all in all, uh, the economic headwinds are building. We've been talking about this for a while. And I think that the recession is, is here in a few, in a few months. Um, all we really need is the unemployment rate to go higher. And with everybody you hear on this channel, you've got to hear the following words. Says man who has market position. And, I, and I, I'm just going to say that Jeffrey Goodlatte may be spot on. You can understand the rationale of a lot of what he says. But if anyone doubts that anyone who comes on this channel in Singapore, in the United States or here in London hasn't got a position for what they're saying, or at least thinks a certain view and has a longer term position, then let's be honest about it. Most people have. They come on. They've got a position. They say what they what will um, support their positionings okay but again i thought it was very interesting what jeffrey goodlett had to say down a half percent for the nasdaq yesterday up six tenths for the dow um the s p stuck in the middle barely moving actually uh let's have a look at the banks banks was a big driver to the upside that's for sure regional banks the big banks all of them moving to the upside uh, look at bank of america up 4.97 percent as well first republic moving higher as well first citizen a mere 54% higher. You're pretty brave if you're playing in that one at the moment as well. Should we have a look at the technology stocks month to date and where they are currently trading again? Uh, month to date, the Nasdaq's up 2.7% so far. The S&P virtually flat, up only 0.2 of 1%. The Dow still marginally lower over that period. But Microsoft has put on 10%. Meta's put on 15%. 
Uh, we don't have Twitter uh, on there, of course, because it's a private company. But I can tell you there's some very interesting pricing uh, going on at that company at the moment, according to internal memos seen by one of the news agencies as well. We'll come to that story later on. Uh, treasuries look like this as well. 3.9% for the two-year uh, and a 10-year at 3.5%. And just one more reminder, of course, any inversion, uh, according to people who watch these things, think signals a recession is coming, which echoes what we were hearing just now from Jeffrey Gundlach. Dollar crosses, dollar on the back foot yet again. Dollar index down three-tenths of 1% for the month. It has lost 1.9%. 123 the pound, 108.07 uh, the dollar versus the euro, euro dollar. And dollar yuan trading, 688 uh, energy, actually a bit of a solid old rally going on in Brent and WTI uh, over the last couple of days. You've got to remember WTI was trading, what, 68, 69 bucks over the last few sessions. Big rally uh, on concerns about uh, global supply. Uh, and now it's just coming off those highs, but it did have a solid rally. Uh, the uh, gold trading up $2.50 per troy ounce. Asian indices look like this. Up eight tenths of 1% for the Hang Seng. I'll tell you what's been exciting. And, and look, whether you like Bitcoin or you loathe Bitcoin, it has had the most almighty rally off its lows. A big, big beneficiary, or so the copy goes, uh, of the recent turmoil in banking assets. So again, whether you understand Bitcoin, whether you love it, whether you're punting or whatever, no undeniable, huge rally. Which means there are ramifications for the next story that we're going to be talking about after the break. Coming up, U.S. regulators take aim at Binance, accusing the crypto exchange and its boss of breaking compliance rules. We'll have details after the break. And for more on the SVB congressional hearings this week, as well as the latest market action and some analysis on whether the banking sector is now safe, check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Executives at bankrupt crypto lender Genesis were reportedly offered early access to FTX crypto tokens. That's according to the Financial Times, which says the close relationship between the collapsed bank and Sam Bankman-Fried's own Alameda Research helped some Genesis executives to invest in the crypto market. The bank was a major backer of Alameda Research, which is accused of stealing FTX customer funds. Binance has been accused of violating compliance rules to attract U.S. users. In a lawsuit, the Commodity Futures and Trading Commission said the company and its CEO, CZ, subverted, quote, their own ineffective compliance program in a bid to gain users. In a statement, Binance said it made significant investments to ensure there were no active U.S. users on the platform. It also called the CFTC complaint, quote, unexpected and disappointing. So basically what we're looking at here, uh, the complaints from uh, the regulator is that this is an illegal foothold that uh, CZ and Binance have obtained in the United States. This is uh, effectively a civil regulator as we talk about the CFTC. However, if a ruling were found against Binance and CZ, 
it could have orders that would permanently expel people from the derivatives market, including CZ and Binance. And uh, if you think about what the wash-up of FTX has been, Binance is now the line in the space. If you take out Binance and trading in one very large market, you'd have to say there would be further ramifications for liquidity in the crypto market. But this is, um, this is fine because he can just go to Washington and defend himself, can't he? You know he's not based there. You know that there are issues in terms I, I don't know where he is. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not in the United States. But surely, he, if, he, if he thinks it's totally legal and that actually the, um, the accusations are wrong, and let's make something very clear legally. I don't know if our lawyers care for us to say this, but he is innocent until proven guilty. The man has been proven guilty of nothing yet. So hence, should be fine to go to Washington and defend himself, surely. I mean, that's, that's obvious, isn't it? I've got no beef with that. I mean, fine. If, if, if you are under the spotlight and the authorities want to have a chat, you would go back and have a chat, one if assumes. If you're an innocent man and you want to grow your franchise in the United you States? You definitely wouldn't be living somewhere without an extradition agreement back to North America, I would imagine. One of the issues that's cropped up in recent weeks, and this is through some Wall Street Journal reporting, has been the very complex network that has been set up to have this US business. And I think it's that complexity that needs to be uncovered at this point. What are the links to CZ and uh, what uh, role is he playing in that particular entity in the United States? And that's the question that regulators have. If, uh, is there a need for such complexity at this point? You know, what is the rationale for that? So I think uh, a lot of answers here, but back to the ramifications again for the sector. And then I was having a conversation with another big player off camera once and asked about uh, what the impact would be if Binance were not part of the equation down the track. And you know, we're asking that now because you've got a lot of major players that have been roiled by what's happened with FTX, with the stable coin story. And you know, this has gone on through to, to various banks funding the sector as well. If you took out Binance, then there could be a major problem for the crypto industry. Well, and at this point, as, as we say, take out Binance. I think what we're talking about is the US operations, the ability here to operate in the US. But, but we, people might have said the same about FTX. Look, again, I, I, I hasten to add, I have no idea and no beef with anything to do with the price. I have no idea where the price of Bitcoin's going. I have no beef with it goes to naught or uh, I don't know, 500,000 per coin, I don't care. But what is undeniable is despite all the turmoil in the sector, there has been a really big rally, which has confounded a lot of people who think it is worth zero. Uh, it went up to 28,000, it's back down now to a 26 handle, but it's still dramatically higher uh, than it was at its lows. So regardless, and I hear what you're saying, and that could well be the case, but I, I just don't know enough to say that Bitcoin will plummet on the back of um, tighter regulation regarding CZ and Binance. Uh, that's the point. We really don't know where this story is going, do we? Because if, if we could see a clear path to regulation, then we'd understand that this whole industry has stepped out of the shadows and has left behind its anti-establishment um, raison d'etre and ultimately now is going to become a fully signed up participant in the global financial economy. Uh, the regulated part of that, obviously. But, but we don't actually know if that's going to happen from here on in, do we? Because probably a wide swathe of the people that have participated in this market in the past will look at these latest actions from the regulators and see only a witch hunt, see only an attempt to drive another business out of um, operation and uh, another attempt to try and prevent this 
um, coin, this asset class, this monetary token, whatever you want to describe it as, from, from existing. But as, uh, as I think you're pointing out, Steve, and the numbers are pretty clear on this, the quarter to date, uh, Bitcoin up 63%, Ether up 41.3% quarter to date here. There are still a lot of people, clearly, who are very interested in this and believe that alongside gold, it does represent an alternative to the cracks that are beginning to appear in some parts of the banking system here. So I just, I just don't think we have enough data to understand how this story ultimately evolves in the long run. But in the short term, if the, the legitimacy of this industry is something that participants in the industry want to see, then I'm afraid you have to turn up when the authorities say, this is the time for the reckoning, demonstrate your business is legal and viable. If you talk about legitimacy, I mean, the institutional participation is key. And to your point around price, the rally has been one on low liquidity off the lows. We've still got the price well and truly off the 60 odd thousand that it was tracking out in the past five years. So we haven't got out of this crypto winter by any means, even though there's been a, a slight rally from low levels. It's not a um, slight rally, Karen. It's a 63% rally. Yeah, but we're down from... It's not from, a slight rally We are down from over $64,000. Uh, and Which is close to where you 20, told people it looks interesting. At 2020, 20, I at never point called Above 50,000, you were like, oh, maybe it's quite interesting for a lot of people. Interesting in terms of the... Well, if we're talking about rallies, a 50,000 to a $64,000 rally is interesting. And this is the same sort of rally you're talking about no. from a 20,000 to a 26,000 I'm not saying point. anyone should get invest, well, investing in it. Like my that. point is that... If we're talking about where we go from here, the FTX story was seen as one that extends out the crypto winter. If there's a problem with Binance, it could have the same problem. It presses reset on a crypto winter. At this point, we don't have institutions largely playing because you had the FTX story, a series of other issues in the banking sector, and institutions pull back from being uh, investors or traders, at least, in the crypto market. You take Binance's foothold away in terms of the US, you've taken out the ability for funds, institutional investors, stateside, to participate in the industry down the track. That's why it's so significant. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.